Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to my pal Rizza for our dope theme music. With the drama of election week gradually but inexorably receding in the rear view and talk of Joe Biden's transition to the presidency, also gradually but inexorably, eclipsing the attention being paid to Donald Trump's desperate and doomed efforts to impugn the legitimacy of the election, I thought it was time to bring onto the pod a rare media figure whose voice is likely to be as large and influential in the era we are entering as it was in the one we are leaving behind. My longtime Crack of Dawn TV colleague, dear friend and fellow music nut both on and off set, and author of the fantastic new book, Saving Freedom, Truman, the Cold War, and the Fight for Western Civilization. The one, the only, Joe Scarborough. The state of our union is a hell of a lot better than what you're hearing right now. You know, I'm a little too optimistic for my own good time and time again, but institutions held for the most part over the past four years. And we've got four, five, six, seven, eight people in the United States Senate that are actually going to create a strong enough middle to get shit done over the next two years. For anyone even remotely familiar with cable news, Joe Scarborough scarcely needs an introduction. Having first come to prominence in the 1990s as a firebrand conservative Republican congressman from Florida, in 2003, he embarked on a TV career as the host of Scarborough Country on MSNBC. Four years later, alongside one co-host who eventually became his wife, Mika Brzezinski, and another who did not, Willie Geist, Scarborough launched Morning Joe. And the rest, as they say, is history, along with Joe's affiliation with the GOP, which he formally renounced in the fall of 2017. As a regular guest pretty much from the start and member of the extended MJ family, I can't really speak about the show with any objectivity, except to say that when it debuted, my first thought was, holy moly, three hours every morning, five mornings every week, almost entirely devoted to politics and policy with no segments about how to make a wine spritzer or buy presents for a baby shower. That is fucking incredible. And my second thought was, (laughs) that'll never work. They'll be canceled within six months. 13 years later, not only is Morning Joe still going strong, but in the days since the election was called for Biden, the show's ratings have surged, and on more than one occasion, it has overtaken Fox and Friends as the top-rated morning show in all of cable news, which just goes to show, not for the first time, what a total dumbass I am. Regarding Joe, on the other hand, fans and critics alike agree about this much, a dumbass he is not. But the reason I'm psyched to have him here goes beyond the sharpness and savvy about politics he displays on his show every morning. In this transitional split-screen moment in American politics, Joe stands out as one of the few broadcasters in the business, and maybe the only cable host, who has known both Trump and Biden really well for a long time, and is a sophisticated assessor of each. And also, as a Republican who both routinely castigates his erstwhile party and still cares about its fate for the sake of our democracy. And also, as both a top-ranked commentator on our current political circumstances and an obsessive student of political history always looking for parallels between past and present and trying to figure out their implications for the future. I wanted to talk about all of this with Joe, Trump and the lasting damage he's inflicted, the Republican Party and its prospects for reformation, Biden and his prospects for fixing what ails the soul of the nation, the man whom Joe christened Moscow Mitch, and the fate of the Senate if it still remains in his control, and of course the subject of Joe's new book, Harry Truman, and the lessons from Truman's life and time in office that still resonate today. And what do you know, we got to all of it, and in a way that demonstrated why Joe is, well, Joe. Even after a long week of fulminating about Trump's lunacy for three hours every morning, the man still had enough gas in the tank to bring his A-game to his first, but surely not his last, appearance on Hell and High Water.
This may be the most important speech I've ever made. I want to provide an update on our ongoing efforts to expose the tremendous voter fraud and irregularities which took place during the ridiculously long November 3rd elections. We used to have what was called Election Day. Now we have election days, weeks and months, and lots of bad things happened during this ridiculous period of time, especially when you have to prove almost nothing to exercise our greatest privilege, the right to vote. Joe, <laughs> that was Donald Trump at the very top, because I just like, you know, how do you decide what to cut out of a 40 minute, 45 minutes of madness that he put on Facebook the other day, that crazy ass speech? Uh, with the charts done from the White House, I will say, desecrating, yeah. desecrating the presidential seal, 45 minutes of, of insanity. And the only reason I wanted to play the very top of it was just to basically remind people that it actually happened and ask you as a starting point, how much damage do you think Trump is doing right now in this whole post-election period by pursuing these conspiracy theories, not conceding, all the stuff we're watching him do? And I'm curious where you come down on that. It's where I've been over the past four years. I remember getting into some fairly heated conversations after Trump got elected during the transition uh, between President Obama and Donald Trump and saying no matter what happened, I thought that for the most part, the institutions were going to hold. When I was in Congress, I traveled to other countries and I noticed immediately the thing that stood out time and again was the difference between in the other countries and ours was uh, that the rule of law that our federal judiciary made a huge difference. I said that, you know, 25 years ago, it's still true right now. When you have Trump appointed federal judges eviscerating his his claims the way they have in Pennsylvania, and really as they have across the country in federal courts over the past four years, I'm pleased that the institutions have held. I will say there was a New Yorker article uh, that talked about Hitler's final days in the bunker, just so everybody doesn't think I'm too optimistic. Let me draw the comparisons with Adolf Hitler. <laughs> but there's a great piece in in the New Yorker a couple of days ago talking about Adolf Hitler's final days in the bunker, and they quoted uh, one of his one of Hitler's biographers on those final days, and he talked about how the lasting legacy of Adolf Hitler was how a democratic country could be turned the way it was. Uh, when political institutions and civilizing forces didn't hold up. Right. Yeah. What I found so fascinating about that quote was the fact that the political institutions have held up. Yes, Mitch McConnell pisses me off. Yes, all of my Republican friends that I served with 25 years ago in the House that are now in the Senate piss me off. They have acted as cowardly as Republicans did while Joe McCarthy was in the middle of his terrible reign in the United States Senate. But the institutions have held. They just have. And Madisonian democracy, the checks and balances, have for the most part held up despite the fact that the Senate and the Republicans in the House the first two years of the Trump administration acted shamefully. That said, what concerns me more, John, and this is something that actually your question gets to, is the second part of that equation. The political institutions held up. 
Donald Trump's leaving office. It's a yeah. fight that I had with Mika time and time again. She said, oh, there's going to be a coup. The military's going to side with him. I said, you don't understand the military, Mika. I was on the Armed Services Committee and generals and admirals, they don't run the military. Retired generals and admirals <laughs> run the military because they're all the bosses of the generals and the admirals who, who are on the Joint Chiefs. And yeah. they listen to them. And sure enough, on June the 1st, who was it? It was the retired admirals, Admiral Mullen. It was retired generals that spoke up, spoke out, and we saw that that institution held up as well. But it's a second part of the equation, the civilizing forces right. that we have to take a long, hard look at. Right now, Donald Trump is causing more damage to those civilizing forces. Let me say some things that are going to be unpopular uh, with everybody here. Uh, <laughs> yes, this happened with Donald Trump. And Republicans have been absolutely shameful talking about Joe Biden, been shameful not standing up to Donald Trump. In the eight years uh, before that, when Barack Obama was president of the United States, lies were spread about him, the, the birther lie, also the lie that he was a Muslim. The majority of Republicans believed in that, despite the fact it was a shameful racist lie. But in the eight years before that, when George W. Bush was president, I remember a poll coming out in 2005, 2006, that said the majority of Democrats believe that George Bush knew about 9-11. Was I shocked at the time? Not really. I just thought, what fucking douchebags? <laughs> just like, seriously, why can't they put their country first? Yeah. So we've had this problem. It went back into the 1990s. Let us not forget, Jerry Falwell sent around videotapes called the Clinton Chronicles, accusing Bill Clinton of murder. Yeah. Before that, George H.W. Bush was accused of peddling drugs in South Central L.A. and shipping crack into L.A. through the CIA. Yeah. So we've had this problem for some time. I think the bigger challenge for us is that it's easier to have these lies go out right. over Facebook to catch fire. But also, I guess say the civilizing forces that held us together, whether you're talking about synagogues, our churches, our rotary clubs, yeah. they're all falling apart. So, I, you know, when I would visit rotary clubs with my father-in-law in the 1990s, if somebody came in and said something crazy, everybody at the table would go, what? Yeah. Come on, Leroy, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Good old Leroy. We don't, we don't have those institutions. Our communities are breaking apart. Yeah. Church membership is collapsing. All the things that bound us together in, in communities and in this country uh, aren't there. And people are just, they're sitting in their homes alone. They're watching whatever cable news channel reinforces their pre-existing prejudices. They're going to the websites that do the same thing. They're sharing the Facebook pages that do the same thing. And it's causing, again, second part of that, that quote, the civilizing forces in this country to tear apart and that poses a really great challenge to us. There's a big lot in that. There's like a, that's a couple of PhD dissertations that we could uh, launch from unpacking all of that. And, and we will and can, not the PhD, PhD dissertations, but the unpacking. Right. I've been with you on basic confidence that we would bang up against these guardrails and occasionally they'd get right. dented and maybe occasionally a guardrail would give away, but that the institutional structures were really, really durable and that they would hold. And I think you're right that by and large they have. Here we sit, though, in December of 2020, and I take your point, right? I covered Bill Clinton. I remember the, you know, the MENA Airport 
uh, cocaine dealing accusations. And before that, did Neil Armstrong really walk on the moon or was it a, you know, I mean, there's a long, a long storied history of conspiracy theories in American life and American culture and American politics. It is still the case that right now as we sit here, and as you know, I was out a lot more than a lot of people during this campaign talking to people. And I am stunned because what I hear is the same thing that a lot of reporters are hearing as they're doing reporting on this, which is like, the polls are not lying that 70, 80, 90, some very large percentage of Republicans think Joe Biden stole the election, that there was systematic fraud. And this gets to your second half of your answer, which is, I don't think, I think it's worse. And I don't think we've ever been in a place where, you know, it was not 80% of Democrats who thought that George Bush was a war criminal. And it wasn't 80% even of Republicans who thought that Barack right. Obama was born in Kenya. But like, right. it's a high percentage now of Republicans who think this was an illegitimate election. And as a practical matter going forward, as a governing challenge, you're Joe Biden, you're about to become president of the United States, wanting to be the president for even the people who didn't vote for you. But the way Biden talks about that, which I find admirable, you know, I want to be the president for people who voted for me and people who didn't vote for me. It's not just they didn't vote for him. They don't think his election was legitimate. And Donald Trump is stoking that in an active way. Right. And the members of your former party are acquiescing to it, at least in Washington, in a stunning way. And so I, I just, yeah. you know, it augurs badly. I am not a hyperbolizer or a catastrophizer, but it augurs ill, I think, that Donald Trump has continues to do what he's doing and that he's finding a ready and eager and accepting audience for his batshit crazy conspiracy theories about what happened in 2020. Augurs ill for the future and for the governability of the country when we face some very large challenges. I know you and I agree. We know this is who Donald Trump is. Yeah. We knew he was never going to concede this race. We knew he was setting this up through the entire year when he kept talking about rigged elections. Yep. He knew he was going to lose to Joe Biden. He expected to lose to Joe Biden by more than he did. It is also deeply disturbing how many Republicans actually believe these lies, these obvious lies. Mm. Uh, it, it's shocking to me, my former party. By the way, so I don't believe polls anymore. I'm right. sure you don't believe most polls anymore. Yeah. You talk about right, what, your, what other reporters are hearing from constituents. I'm, I listen to what elected members of Congress are saying, because as a former House member, yeah. I, I know that they're, for the most part, they're, yeah. they're reflecting what people are telling them. And I saw two, uh, two things I saw today very concerning to me. One, a woman that got elected in Northeast Iowa, a Republican. Dave Weigel interviewed her, and it was a great interview. I'm sitting there going, oh, oh, my God, we're turning the page. Well, what do you think about the Republican Party just playing to old white men? She said, I think this is a terrible idea. We need to worry about diversity. We need to worry about this. We need to worry, we need to worry about you know, civil norms, political norms. I'm reading the whole thing and I'm going, all right, yay, America, we're going to get through this. Like we're turning the page on Donald Trump. And one of Dave's last questions was, did Joe Biden win the election? Well, well, we, we, we need to, we need to count all the votes and we need to do all the, you know, have the, all the challenges heard in court and we need to blah, blah, blah. We've already done that. You know, right. I even gave Mitch McConnell the benefit of the doubt when he said that we needed to count the votes and, and go through the leagues. I said, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sit back. Let's count all the votes. Let's go through the legal challenges. And then you say Joe Biden won because we knew 
Even Scott Walker in Wisconsin knew after the election. Recounts yep. don't change anything. So, yes, that's a concern. Abigail Spanberger, I read somewhere, also a Democrat in a swing district in Virginia, also expressing uh, a little concern, wanting this process to play out. Um, the process has played out. We're beyond yeah. that. But that tells me that the majority of their constituents are telling them they think the election was rigged, the, at least the Republicans there. So my only Pollyannish retort to that, because I have a Pollyannish retort to everything, I, I, I actually believe things are going to turn out all right. Uh, I would just say if we remember back to November and December 2000. We remember the United States Supreme Court ruling five to four that the recount needed to be stopped, that George W. Bush was going to be the president of the United States. Just go back and look at the press clippings. The Supreme Court will never be trusted again. George yep. W. Bush will never get the respect of blah, blah, blah. You know, he was an illegitimate president. Everybody was churning it up. And I understood why Democrats were saying it. I was a Republican at the side. I was in Florida. I was fighting for Bush. But I understood why Democrats were upset. And yet, George W. Bush, even before 9-11 in that first year, his approval ratings were in the 50s, mid-50s, yeah. high 50s. After 9-11, you know, he was up in the 90s, highest approval ratings ever. So I'm looking at this period, and I'm actually I'm just trying to get through this period without doing exactly what Donald Trump wants all of us to do, and that is respond to his madness. That is his fuel. Our collective outrage is what drives him, what helps him raise more money. So that's why, at least on our show, we're not showing clips. We're trying right. to trying to talk more about Biden. We're trying to talk to historians about where we are. But yeah, it is it is deeply troubling. And uh, I'm just counting down the days. Donald Trump, cause or symptom, cause of the decline and fall of the Republican Party as a ideologically serious, intellectually plausible governing uh, party or cause like hostile takeover. The party was taken over by this outside force, and now that he's gone, it can get back to being what it used to be, and, and there'll be debates, whatever, or symptom, yeah. meaning you know, meaning the party had been in a state of, of decline and rot for a long time, and that Trump came along to kind of be like the rotten cherry on top of the curdled Sunday. You know, like, this is the Stuart Stevens, it was all a lie version of it, which is basically right. like, it was all a lie. The Republican Party yeah. has been fucked by racism and fake populism. If I really am honest, I look back over the last 30 years and I realize I've been working to advance the interests of a cause that was really deleterious to mm. the national interest that was profoundly corrupt in some ways. And there's, you know, that's a kind of repentance that's happening among certain ex-Republicans. Mm -hmm. And you and I have kind of talked about this at various times, like, is the Republican Party really just fucked or is Trump, again, kind of an aberration? Once he's gone, things will kind of get back to, and I'm putting quote marks around, air quotes around, normal. I, I think for the most part, I have been moving towards Stuart Stevens' position for some time that I, I was in a party that was far more rotten than I had, had believed, uh, that so many of the things that uh, the Republican Party, well, I really I don't I don't care about the Republican Party. Let me just talk about the conservative movement. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, because I don't give a shit. I, party party labels have never really mattered to me. In fact, yeah. I've always, I've never liked the Republican establishment. Uh, raised hell when I was in Congress against the Republican establishment. And how funny that these people who said I was way too conservative when I was in Congress uh, because sort of a libertarian slash populist uh, sucked up to Donald Trump and now are saying I'm too liberal when I'm just saying the same thing. But but it has been really hard, uh, not only politically as a conservative, to see that everything that our harshest critics were saying about us was true. Uh, but I find it hard to believe that my party could have fallen off the cliff the way they did just because of Donald Trump. Now, that said, what, what, what do we say four years from now when Nikki Haley wins the Republican nomination and starts talking about diversity? And by the way, I've got no use for Nikki Haley because she's kowtowed to Donald Trump just as much as anybody else. But, you know, what do we say four years from now? when the party suddenly sees the error of their ways and and follows whoever that next leader is going to be. It's hard to say, but but the rank and file, the base of the Republican Party is, is what concerns me the most. You know, at first I was concerned with Trump, and then I said, the hell with him. He's just a deplorable human being. He's a deplorable president. He's trying to destroy Madisonian democracy. And then I turned and I started looking at the senators and the members of the House and and said, OK, they're the real problem. Now, I look at the fact that 90 percent of the Republican Party voted for Donald Trump, an extraordinarily high number of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And when I talk to my friends, I mean, most of my friends, most of my family members, the people I, I see day in and day out voted yeah. for Donald Trump. And right. I call him up yeah. and I'm like, hey, buddy, how you doing? Fine. Hey, so who are you voting for? Donald Trump. OK, well, first of all, um, you do know <laughs> that over the past two weeks, this was the last couple weeks of the campaign. I'm just curious yeah. what you're thinking about this for the show. So I said past two weeks, we have a president of the United States who's been calling for the arrest of his political opponent and pressuring his attorney general to arrest his political opponent and his family because he's losing in the polls. Yeah. Oh, that's just Donald being Donald. That's just the way he is. And I'd go down the list and they always said, you know, uh, that's just Donald. I said, you do know that he accused me of murder 12 times and said I should be prosecuted and thrown <laughs> in jail and executed, right? Well, Thanks, yeah, friends. yeah, but that's just Donald. You know, Joe, you yeah. you guys just go at each other a lot. You just attack mm. him and he attacks you. And they, I said, I've never called for his arrest and execution. In fact, I don't even bring up Stormy Daniels other than the fact that, you know, he broke FEC laws that would have had congressmen or senators sent to jail. Uh, but, you know... At the end, you strip it down, and what they all tell you is basically, I hate the Democrats. Right. It's the negative partisanship. Right. Joe Biden's a socialist. I go, you know that's fucking bullshit. You know Biden's right. not a socialist. Now, if Bernie had won or Elizabeth Warren had won, then, you, then I'd say, yeah, Bernie says he's a socialist. Fair enough. If, if you would rather vote for a fascist than a socialist, you can vote for the fascist. That's up to you. But just know you're voting for a fascist. And if it were Elizabeth Warren, I'd say, well, she 
she says she's not a socialist, but still, she's very progressive. She's yeah. very to the left. So, yeah. but I said, we're talking about Joe fucking Biden. Yeah. A guy who's been attacked his entire life for being too conservative, for giving cover to Clarence Thomas, for being too close to the big banks, to being too close to the corporations that all go to his home state. Yeah. They've been yeah. too close to credit card companies. Yeah. I call bullshit, bullshit. on you. <laughs> and then they yeah. go, yeah, but you know. He's so old. He'll be a puppet for the left. He'll be a puppet. If he gets for in, AOC will be running the administration. Listen, listen, he'll be a puppet for AOC. I said, you do yeah. understand that Nancy Pelosi regularly mocks AOC in press conferences, right? You do understand she's a backbencher that that is not going to get within a thousand miles of Joe Biden. She represents her constituents well, but using her as the boogeyman to yeah. scare everybody. I said, that is just absolute insanity. But that's exactly what they do. They do whatever they can to justify voting for a guy. And this is what I'm working through right now, John. I really hope over the next few years, we get to a point where commentators, columnists, and historians can call a fascist a fascist. Yeah. You look at the definition of fascist. You look at the yeah. definition of fascism. Mm -hmm. Look it up on Wikipedia. Look it up in political theory books. It's Donald Trump, a right-wing nationalist who talks about uh, a, a battle against the others. A guy who would, let's say, oh, I don't know, tell black members of Congress to go home, to go back where they're from. It's hard yep. for me not to look at Donald Trump, look at elected members of Congress and, and, and look at the base of the Republican Party and a lot of my friends and loved ones. And by the way, people who, if I ask them for a kidney, for a kidney transplant, or if I said, hey, I'm about to die, can you raise my kids for me? They would do it in a second. They would yeah. do whatever. Lifelong friends. I know you've got them. I've got them. Lifelong friends. But here I am a couple of weeks later trying to figure out how they voted for a fascist and how over and a racist and, 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 and a racist and a xenophobe a fascist, and all a those racist, things. Yeah. A xenophobe and and also how 72, 73, 74 millions voted for a fascist and a racist and a xenophobe. It's deeply disturbing. Um, so so that's one part of your answer. And I'll yeah. just answer very quickly on the other side uh, yeah. of that. I made the mistake of watching Showtime's documentary of the Reagans. Yeah. And they go, and then Reagan said he was for small government. And then they would cut. Somebody said, well, you know, when somebody says they're for small government, all they're saying is they hate black people. And I'm sitting there going to Meek. I'm going, my God, my God, this is the bullshit I grew up hearing all the yeah. time. So I'm trying to sort through that. If I ever tweet anything about Margaret Thatcher, if I ever tweet anything about the free market, I might as well be saying I'm for apartheid, not only yeah. in 1980 South Africa, but in Los Angeles and New York. So yeah. I'm a bit torn. I was definitely in Stuart Stevens' camp until I saw the Showtime documentary on Ronald Reagan. And then it reminded me of the overreach that progressives always had just because I came into Congress as a deficit hawk, just because right. I believe whenever possible, let the local government 
take care of something. If they can't take care of it, let the state government take care of it. And if they can't take care of it, let the federal government take care of it. That's my general organizing principle on government, not because I'm a racist, but because I think that's the way things work most effectively. Um, but that said, long yeah. story short, I'm closer to Stuart Stevens' <laughs> position that that the conservative movement and the Republican Party had to be rotten to its core to fall this quickly for Donald Trump. I think you're you're on to the most important thing, I think, which is that like the defining feature of my life covering politics has been increasing partisanship and polarization. So it's like to your point about like, why did people vote for Trump? There's a lot of answers to that, but there's certainly some part of it now is like we are really just in this really fucked up place where Democrats and Republicans just are not just uh, differing on policy or ideology, but see the world in a totally different way. Right. We know, you know, that if you thought COVID was the most important thing in the election in the, in 2020 and the most important issue at stake, you were almost certainly a Democrat and you voted for Joe Biden. If you thought that the economy and reopening it more quickly was the most important thing, which is what most Republicans thought they voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. But this partisan thing is super key to understanding what's going on, I think, and deserves a lot longer discussion. The, la the last question I want to ask you now that it's it's almost over the mm -hmm. Trump era and is the grappling with the question of our and when I say our, I mean the media's mm -hmm. and then I mean our, you mm -hmm. know, yours, mine. Right. The degree of our culpability in having Trump win. And I, I just say for myself, right, I think about 2016, there is no doubt I would say, you know, first that I was ahead of the curve on thinking that Trump could win the Republican nomination right. and wildly wrong about the general election where I was mm. one of those people, unlike you, who thought there was no way, given demographics and other things, there was no way he could win the general election. I was like, you know, I'm going to criticize the guy, but in the end, she's going to win. That was my basic posture. Analytically, looking at polling, looking at the demography of the country, looking at all kinds of things at core. I thought Trump won't win this election. And yeah. so I criticized him, but I didn't criticize him as much as I should have. And I'm and I know you get people in your face all the time who say, mm -hmm. You guys were Trump enablers on Morning yeah. Joe. Oh yeah. No, I listen, I think about it all the time. I mean, just like I'm sure the guy that had the morning show in Germany in nineteen thirty two thought about it all the time. But yeah. no, I it's something that I, I thought about so much. Uh and and so this is this is where this is where I've come down finally at the end. I you know because I was so worried like you just like everybody else every single day when he was in power through the election until we called it for Joe Biden um, on that Saturday, and and I actually really have a better look at it now and a better perspective on it now because I believe the threat is beyond us and before that. I just tell people, shut, you know, just shut the fuck up. Look, read my Washington yeah. Post columns. I called him a racist. I called him a bigot. I called sure. him a Nazi back in December of 2015. We confronted him on Vladimir Putin. I yelled at him and hung up the phone with him because he wouldn't answer my question about the Muslim registry. Uh, you can go back, you know, you can talk about it. I said he, he was disqualified after what he said about David Duke or, or what he didn't say about David Duke, pretending he didn't know Duke, et cetera, et cetera. Judge Curiel, you go through it. I can tell you all the things that we did. Uh, we were extraordinarily harsh. People don't remember Donald Trump. There is a but coming. So uh, people don't remember that Donald Trump was attacking me and Mika throughout the spring of 2016 as well. 
But yeah, there are a lot of things. And so uh, going back, we had known we had known Donald for over a decade and known him because he worked at NBC. Uh, we were too, I think, too chummy with him on the air at times throughout 2015, even though we were also, you know, we were tough. We'd ask him the yeah. tough questions. And, you know, the transcripts are all there and we're pretty harsh. But when I look back and say, where did I really fuck up? And, and was it that we had him on, had him calling in all the time? I mean, I don't know. You tell me um, on that front, we invited Jeb, we invited Hillary, we invited everybody. Anybody who wants to call into our show, if you're running for president, we'll take you. As you know, Trump is a guy, he, he always wants to be on. So we let him on the show. Uh, he must have been on 30, 40 times. I don't know, until we stopped talking in, in uh, the spring of 2016. So I, I look at that. And say, should we have had him on that much? Should should we have had that open invitation to everybody out there? And of course, now, if we knew the guy was going to win, if we knew the last four years was going to be the way it was, we would have acted differently. We wouldn't have had him on the show at all. On the other hand, Donald Trump's voters, they don't watch MSNBC's morning show. So when people say to me, <laughs> you elected Donald Trump, I said, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why couldn't I elect Jeb Bush? Why couldn't I elect John Huntsman four years earlier? Why couldn't I elected Mitt Romney in 2008? Just listen to those three names. As for yeah. Romney in 08, I was for John Huntsman in 12, and I was for yeah. Jeb Bush in 16. I have good no good track record there, but it's a yeah. horrid track record. <laughs> Here's where I think I made the biggest mistake. Yeah. And I don't know if Mika feels this way or not. I think our obsession on Hillary Clinton and the emails, given everything that's happened over the past four years, looks ridiculous. If you had asked me in 2017, should we? Should the New York Times, Washington Post, everybody follow those emails? I've said yes, yes, because we said in real time Hillary was screwing this up. Her UN press conference was awful. She needed to get out in front of it. But no, we paid way too much attention to the emails. I look at the Hillary Clinton emails and I think, well, God, given everything that Donald Trump and his administration's done, that's absolutely nothing. I don't know that we could have known that in real time, but but what do you think? What, where do you come down? Because other than that email situation, I'm just wondering what else the media could have done. I mean, the media was the media was about as uh, as negative against Donald Trump as they have been against any presidential candidate in my lifetime. The thing that I goes to your point about the call-ins, and I think this is different categorically different, but I, but it's related uh, about the, how many times he called in. I think like if I'm running a three hour morning show and there's a bunch of presidential candidates out there and I say to all of them, guys, we will put you on the air anytime you want. Mm -hmm. I don't have fun to find that problematic. Right. But here's the, the related thing that I think in retrospect, I think we have a consensus was a bad idea, which was the habit of cable news to give Donald Trump in prime time to put his rallies on. Right. For, and run them uninterrupted without commentary night yeah. after night after I night. Agree. Now, CNN, I agree. CNN was more guilty of that than anybody, but Fox News obviously did it too. I think that was a big, was a cardinal sin. I agree. Um, and I think Jeff Zucker, I, I believe, acknowledges that now that that was not, they, they obviously stopped doing it. 
uh, at some point. But I think that was a was a, a, a fundamental core mistake that that the press made. And th- there were two standards there again. With yeah. our show, we said, if you want to call in, call in. In yep. that case, yeah. they sh- if they were going to run Trump's rallies, and I'm talking about MSNBC, CNN, everybody, Fox yeah. News, everybody. If you're going to run Trump's rallies, you got to run everybody's rallies. Uh, you, yeah. you have that responsibility. I will say, though, too, just to let people know about, like, for instance, Hillary. Hillary wouldn't come on, despite the yep. fact I got slammed in 2008 for being too friendly to Hillary, to Hillary Clinton. Clinton. People yep. would come on and call me Hillary's girlfriend I, or, or say Hillary was my girlfriend. They would accuse me of being too kind to her. And yet in 16, we couldn't get her to call in. She finally called in the day before the Iowa primary. But to get a one-on-one interview, we had to get NBC. Maybe this was in February. I don't know. I just remember we got on this small private plane. Yeah. We had to yeah. fly down to South Carolina. We landed like on this dusty airstrip. We were scared shitless, thought we were going to die. Then we had to get into a van, drive 30 minutes. Then they held us outside for like another 45 minutes. And they said, now you can go in to interview the yeah, secretary right. of state. You have 14 minutes. And I'm sitting yeah. there. I turned to Meek. I yeah. said, are you fucking kidding me? We did all it. And we're getting 14 minutes. Is is there? Whereas yep. you want Trump, you call Trump up. And by the way, guess what happened after I yelled at Trump and screamed at him and, and told him he couldn't be on our show? Right. Yeah. He called back. I said, will you answer the question? Yeah, I'll answer the question. Okay, let's go. Right. So I think politicians should actually tear this one page from Donald Trump and John McCain's 2000 campaign. Put yourself out there. Yeah. I mean, look, if you look back, if you just in retrospect, we'll tie this up here and then we'll take a break and we can go on and we'll get to Harry Truman in your book. But like, you know, you think about when Hillary Clinton finally sat down after the election and did the two hour long interview she did with Howard Stern. It was fucking fantastic. Oh, yeah. She was great. She was great. Everything. And I know everybody who worked for Hillary Clinton when they heard that interview you know, with Stern. They all sat there and said, man, like it was a big mistake, not their mistake, because they many of them wanted her to be more accessible than Mm -hmm. she was. But a lot of them sat there and said, man, you know, if only we could have gotten her to do this during the campaign, because she's really good in these settings. I met Hillary uh, in 95 in the spring at some White House event, met Bill Clinton, met the Gores. And I I called into a radio show the next day and they said, what do you think about Bill Clinton? I go, ah, he's Bill Clinton, you know, so slippery. But what do you think about the Gores? Oh, you know, kind of cold, kind of wood. I'm not 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 huge fans of him. I didn't get a chance to talk to him a lot, but didn't get a great impression. And then the talk show guy who's right winger said, oh, you must have hated Hillary. I go, there's where you're wrong. I said, "I, I probably won't get reelected. But I really liked her a lot. She has a winning personality. And um, I said, you know what? She didn't remind me of a left-wing radical. She reminded me of a Midwest Methodist when I talked to her. And that's the thing about Hillary. When you meet Hillary, she's a Midwest, Midwest Methodist who I can see how she supported Goldwater, went off to college, got swept up in a lot of the movements of her time for good reason and a lot of really great causes. Uh, But that's the thing that she's never been able to translate in presidential campaigns because 
She just tightens up on the campaign trail. But she is, yeah. for people that have never met her, she is a likable person, so likable, and it just never came across in campaigns. Um, let us uh, let us take a break now and pay some bills and come back for part two, The Truman Show, part of this episode with Joe Scarborough here on Hell and High Water. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. So that is Harry Truman, the man himself, in August of 1945, uh, not just explaining what has just happened with the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, but ushering in a new and scary age in America, really the start of the Cold War, which would last for more than 40 years. Joe, you wrote a book on Truman. We'll say the title again to help you sell some more books. Saving Freedom, Truman, The Cold War, and the Fight for Western Civilization, available at Amazon.com and anywhere else you find your books. You know, you've done books before, Joe, but every one of them is a huge task. So um, I'm just thinking, like, as I read this thing, why Truman? Like, what was it about Harry Truman that fascinated you enough that you decided to write an entire book about the dude? And why you thought it was necessary right now? When I went to Congress, I had a picture of Reagan and a picture of Truman up on my wall. And nobody was surprised that I had Reagan's picture up, but they were surprised with Truman. And I said, well, in, in part, it was because he's a cold warrior. And in the Scarborough family, we were conservatives. And that started with being cold warriors. And Harry Truman not only had to fight against isolationists in the Republican Party, but he had to fight against progressives in the Democratic Party and his own party, and many people like Henry Wallace, who were far too ambivalent about the threat that Joseph Stalin posed, uh, not only to Europe, but to all of civilization. Uh, so I, I love Truman for that. Uh, but uh, another one of my earliest political heroes was Bobby Kennedy. And like Bobby Kennedy, uh, Harry Truman told it like it was. You know, Truman had uh, the buck stops here on his desk and you know, that's what he believed. I, and I love the fact that time and time again, uh, he would fight for things that were unpopular. It was obviously he had to make, make a, an extraordinarily difficult decision deciding to drop the bomb on Hiroshima. But he made that decision with a calculation that it was going to save millions of lives, both American and Japanese lives. And he made the decision and he never looked back. And if you look, by the way, at the casualties from conventional weapons at the time, the bombing of yeah. Tokyo, more people died uh, in bombings uh, over uh, American bombings of Tokyo or 
You look in the the Dresden, Atlantic. Yeah. I was just going to say in the Atlantic. I mean, Dresden firebombings, absolutely inhumane, uh, ghastly, yeah. and un unlike the bombings uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, they really weren't focused so much at ending the war as they were, I think, exacting revenge on Germany and Hitler. But but he made tough decisions in 1948. He made the decision to integrate. The armed forces, nobody would have expected that from Harry Truman, especially given the fact that both of his parents had Confederate sympathies and he had said some extraordinarily racist things throughout his life. But he decided in 48 it was the right thing to do, despite the fact he was going to he knew he would split his party in half. And sure enough, yeah. the Dixiecrats and Strom Thurmond split in the 48 convention. You had Henry Wallace running against him from the progressive side. So. He was fighting a two-front war in his own party and also uh, going against Dewey. He still managed to win um, and, and left, left the White House after eight years with a 22% approval rating. But yeah. we are the great beneficiaries of that 22% because, in part, uh, a lot of that had to do with extraordinarily unpopular decisions, not only starting the Cold War, not only integrating the armed forces, but also firing Douglas MacArthur. But, but he did what he thought was right. And it was just like the 48 election that night when he was told he was going to lose. He did what he always does, made himself a sandwich, drank some milk, went to bed and said, the hell with it. What'll be will be. Yeah. Uh, and when he went back to independence with a 22% approval rating, he went back there with Winston Churchill saying, no one has done more to save Western civilization than Harry Truman. And uh, I, I, I think I would live with that. You know, like everybody else who's a huge pop culture junkie, we're both inveterate list makers. So mm -hmm. I ask you the most superficial question I could possibly ask you. I mean, I love superficial uh, questions. I love lists. I've always been a simpleton that way. Of course. So where, does, where do you put Truman on your list of all-time American presidents? Well, there's no doubt that, that uh, post-war, um, he was uh, the most important most significant foreign policy president that we had. Harry yep. Truman created the world that we live in. It's, it's shock. It really is shocking that, that a guy that so few people have thought about over the past 75 years did that. But with the Truman Doctrine, with the policy of containment, uh, with plan. the Marshall Plan, with NATO, uh, with the Berlin Airlift, with these institutions that he set up and the fact that he championed the United Nations formation, these institutions, uh, especially the institutions that saved Western Europe and Central Europe from Stalin and, and Soviet communism, he, he really created the foreign policy so construct you, that allowed us, well, first of all, allowed us to contain the Soviets, ultimately defeat yeah. the Soviets, and launch the American century. Now, you had two pictures on your wall as congressman. You had Reagan and, and Truman. Truman started the Cold War. Reagan ended the Cold War. Mm -hmm. You were a you used, to, used to be a Republican and, mm -hmm. and, a, and a devotee of Ronald Reagan. You would say that you put Truman above Reagan on our superficial list. Well, I think they're bookends. Harry Truman created the world we lived in, and he made Ronald Reagan possible. Okay. So, yes, as far as foreign policy presidents go, yes, Harry Truman... Uh, is above Ronald Reagan and is above all of the other foreign so, policy presidents. So, you know, presidents. I read this book, you know, 
the McCulloch book, right? Which yeah. is a big fat book, David incredible. McCulloch's book on Truman. It's an incredible book. And obviously your book is not an attempt to, to like do a whole biography of Truman, which is what McCulloch's book is. No, but I remember as funny as we were talking about getting ready to do this. And as I sat down with your book, I was thinking about there was a passage in this book, McCulloch's book that has like when I read it the first time stood out for me and it has always rattled around inside my head because it captured just how overwhelming Truman's circumstances were when he came into office. You know, we know Truman knew that Roosevelt mm -hmm. was dying in the 44 campaign. Truman didn't know when he was going to have to step up, but he knew he would have to step up at some point. But the world was in such such titanic uh, seismic disarray. And I, I'll just read this to you just because I just it's always stunned me. Right. He says this is a, a quote from McCulloch. He says in just three months in office, Harry Truman had been faced with a greater surge of history with larger, more difficult, more far-reaching decisions than any president before him. Neither Lincoln, after first taking office, nor Franklin Roosevelt in his tumultuous first hundred days had had to contend with issues of such magnitude and coming all at once. In boyhood, Truman had poured over the pages of great men and famous women and Plutarch's lives and concluded that men made history and he had never changed his mind. He remained old-fashioned in this as in other ways, but if ever a man had been caught in a whirlwind not of his making, it was he. <laughs> we cannot get away from the results of the war, Stalin said at Potsdam, and it was just such results that had beset Truman since the night he raised his right hand and took the oath of office beneath the Wilson portrait. The launching of the United Nations, the menacing presence of the Red Army in Eastern Europe, Britain's bankruptcy, the revealed horrors of the Holocaust, the wasteland of Berlin, the advent of the nuclear age in New Mexico, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki, all were results of the war, as indeed was his own role now if one accepted the premise, as most did, that it was the strain of the war that had killed Franklin Roosevelt. What was most striking about the long course of human events Truman had concluded from his reading of history were its elements of continuity, including above all human nature, which had changed little, if at all, through time. The only new thing in the world is the history you don't know, he would one day tell an interviewer. But clearly unparalleled power and responsibility had been thrust upon him at one of history's greatest turning points, and the atomic bomb the looming shadow of the mushroom cloud were absolutely new things in the world. The old rules didn't apply any longer. Europe was in ruin. Britain finished as a world power. Asia devastated and in a state of horrendous confusion. And who was to say about Stalin? You just think about all of that, like the scope of it, you know, for this guy who mm -hmm. had been underestimated, put down, minimized, thought of as a small figure, the haberdasher from Independence, Missouri, all of that. And right. then he meets that moment. So I ask you, like having studied him now, what is it mm -hmm. that allowed the qualities of character? Because I accept the notion, Truman's notion. Men do make history. There are large structural forces. There's economics and technology and all that stuff. Right. But some force of personality, some characteristics, qualities of leadership, of humanity, of like who this person was allowed him to transcend mm -hmm. all expectations of what people thought he was capable of and meet that moment and then leave the lasting legacy that you just laid out for why he's the most important post-war foreign policy president. What do you think you know about Truman now as a man, as a leader, as a person that allowed that to happen because it was not foreordained. He had an inner conviction about what he did and if what he did he thought was right, he did not care what the critics said. And that's what, that's what Truman had to make those tough decisions, whether it was about dropping the atomic bomb, whether it was offending people in the left wing of his party and 
isolationist Republicans with the Truman Doctrine, whether it was integrating the armed forces, whether it was firing Douglas MacArthur, uh, an extraordinarily popular general from World War II and the Korean War. So that explains how he made those decisions. But what made a failed haberdasher who had been dismissed as a rube by the New York Times and been called the mousy little man from Missouri by Time Magazine when he was selected and called the second Missouri Compromise by Roosevelt's own team uh, when he was selected as vice president and had to deal with people in his own party at the convention holding up signs saying, we're just mild about Harry. Uh, take off on a song back then called I'm Just Wild About Harry. I, I think he was able to confront all those decisions for a reason that you, you already brought up. He was an avid reader of history. From an early age, he read history. He was obsessed with it. Uh, he understood the difficult decisions that had confronted leaders throughout history. And he did believe, like I believe and um, you believe, that men and women do shape history. And there's no greater example of that than Harry Truman in 1944 being selected as vice president instead of Henry Wallace. Can you imagine the direction uh, the country would have taken if Henry Wallace, a guy who was far too sympathetic to the Soviet Union, uh, had stayed in office as vice president and remained as vice president? And then in April of 45, when FDR died, taken over the world as we know it now, would have been radically yeah. different. But uh, it was made more difficult for Truman by the fact that FDR was extraordinarily yeah. reckless uh, in how he handled that transition. Roosevelt knew he was going to die, and yet Roosevelt didn't tell him about the Manhattan Project. Roosevelt didn't Fucking brief him. Crazy. They had two meetings, two meetings in the three months that they were together in the he White finds House. Out, he finds out about the Manhattan Project in his first cabinet meeting. He's he's like, I mean, yeah. talk about a thing yeah. to like have been, you're the vice president of the United States and you don't know about this yeah. thing that's going to alter the course of human history. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, Mr. President, welcome to the... Yeah, after the cabinet meeting, Stimson calls him to the side. Go, hey, hey, come here. I got, I got <laughs> something to tell you. We got this thing going on. Uh <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's going to bring in a yeah. new age where could destroy mankind. Right. Yeah. So, um, so the fact that he succeeded despite being kept in the dark is even more Incredible. extraordinary. And not only did he succeed, he again, he created the world that, that we live in, that the United States thrived in over the past 75 years. So you've done a bunch of interviews about the book. Naturally, people have, have been asking you, over and over again about the similarities between Biden and Truman. And, mm -hmm. you know, you've said in a lot of those interviews, you know, number one, underestimated through their whole lives. And number two, both really understand government. Mm -hmm. You know, creatures of Washington understand the institutions. And those are both things that gave them advantages in terms of how they govern. Right. I wonder whether there's things about Truman's life that are similar that the, the struggles that Truman had shaped his character as much as the struggles that Biden has had and whether you see some similarity there too, that the things that you would kind of count as as not assets, but in fact liabilities, ended up kind of making them perfect for the moment and that Biden will could conceivably have that in common with Truman too. Yeah, I think so. I, I, they, they both, uh, in, in very different ways, had difficult lives. Both were as you said, underestimated uh, from the start. Truman's father was a failed businessman. Truman was a failed businessman. He was directionless. He came back from World War I, started up 
his haberdashery and because of a recession, lost everything, found himself in, in his 30s, a veteran, out of work, in debt, and decided to get involved in politics, which he never thought he would get involved with. He had, a, again, had a rough time in politics, too. He was looked down upon because of the political machine that uh, he came from. It seemed like he worked every day uh, to try to get that stain washed away from him. He was, uh, again, considered a hayseed, considered a rube, attacked by the media and, and shunned in polite society. And I, I, think, I think Joe Biden has in many ways felt that sting as well. I thought the first time he really connected, Joe Biden did, in a meaningful way in the campaign where he said, wait a second, that, that really rings true, was when I first heard him talking about not having an Ivy League degree. And said, yeah. you know, people are criticizing me because I don't have a, what the hell do they know? Why do I need to have an Ivy League degree? Right. Well, Harry Truman graduated from Spalding Commercial College <laughs> in Kansas City. Yeah. And I don't think it was even a college. It might have been a sort of a VOTAC school. And so I think that binds them together in a way, too. But I will say that the fact that they're both creatures of the Senate, that they both knew how to make things work in Washington, D.C., might make the biggest difference. Even though uh, I was a Republican, even though I'm a conservative, even though I've got a populist streak in me, I get so sick and tired of people you know, running as outsiders in Washington and people on the inside pretending they're outsiders in Washington. You know, I, I, when I lived in Connecticut, I would drive 50 minutes uh, to go to the right dentist, a guy who really knew what he was doing. You know, we always try to find the specialists, the people who, you know, know how to, how to do a root canal with make you jumping out of the chair or the surgeon who, who knows how to operate on your mother or your father. We want experts. We want people that know how to handle a crisis in the worst of situations. Why should it be any different in government? Why do we, you know, Donald Trump, outsider, you know? Uh, Barack Obama, uh, for the most part, was a state senator. He got into the United States Senate and Harry Reid right after he saw him said, you don't want to be here. Why don't you just run for president? So Barack Obama didn't know how to run the Senate. George W. Bush uh, let everybody know with a snarl that he had very uh, little use for Washington, D.C. Uh, so we've had three presidents in a row who really didn't know how to work the Senate. And you have to go into the boxing ring you have to understand that you're going to be with somebody who is going to work to knock your head off, uh, that, that wants you to be defeated, that is going to work for your opponent when you run for office again, that's going to raise money to try to get you out of office and send you home. And you still have to sit down and understand, as Hyman Roth would say, this is the life that we have chosen, right? And so you sit down with them. And you try to do what's best for America. And I, uh, my best example of this is Bill Clinton, who you could impeach the man on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, he would call you up and be like, hey, let's go golfing. Um, because Bill Clinton always knew there was another vote. There was another issue that was coming up. And he was going to need your vote. He was going to need your support. And he stayed engaged better than anybody I've ever seen in politics, which is, guess what? That's why he accomplished so much over eight years. And six of those years, 
with a Republican Congress that impeached him and wanted him out. And I think Biden has that trait. Same thing with Harry Truman. The Republicans despised him. They had been in the minority for 14 years in early 1947. They didn't want to help Truman out. Truman didn't want to help the Republicans out, but he knew he could only confront Stalin if Arthur Vandenberg and the Republicans wanted to help. So, yeah, I mean, you think about everything we've been talking about here and what extraordinarily long odds Truman faced, um, what an incredible uphill climb it was for him. Um, I mean, he was ill-prepared for what he had to face and yet took it on in a way that, as you point out in the book, really changed the world. Um, We also know that the guy who's about to take office, Joe Biden, is going to be facing another kind of uphill climb, and some would say extremely long odds also given the state of American politics that he's going to be confronting. And I I really want to dive into that further with you uh, and think about the parallels potentially between Truman and Biden uh, after the break. We're going to get to that. But first, uh, we got to pay some bills here. So everyone stick around and we'll be back with more of Joe Scarborough on Hell and High Water. So we are back with Joe Scarborough. And Joe, right before the break, uh, we mentioned that among the many challenges that Truman faced when he took office was the Republican Party. Uh, you were talking about Vandenberg and, and Stalin and, and just the, you know, the fact that Truman had to rely on Republican votes. And that was tricky because Republicans fucking hated Harry Truman. And, you know, Joe Biden could very soon find himself in a situation where he's like, yeah, Harry Truman had it good, uh, given that he's going to be dealing with Mitch McConnell, who either is going to be uh, still majority leader Uh, if Democrats lose one or both of those uh, Senate runoffs in Georgia, or at the best for Biden, you got a situation where it's a tie split 50-50 split in the Senate and and Kamala Harris is casting a lot of tie-breaking votes, but that doesn't really make much room for, you know, Democratic defections. It also doesn't deal with the situation on anything that's filibusterable. So uh, Joe Biden can be facing a very, very tough situation. Mitch McConnell, whether he's majority leader or not, is going to wield an extraordinary amount of power. We know what his strategy was and his tactics were against Barack Obama. We know where we now stand with relation to partisanship. We know what the Republican Party has done with relation to Trump. You know, Moscow Mitch, I believe that's a, a phrase that, that one of the people on this podcast came up with, and it wasn't yeah. me. Wow. So Moscow Mitch... You know, uh, a great phrase, by the way. I loved when that so one. Much. I loved when that went popular. When that went viral, it was like made me happy. But Mitch McConnell, he there, right? There is a one point of view which is Joe Biden is delusional when he thinks that he can do business with Mitch McConnell. Uh, there's another world, another view which is like Joe Biden has a relationship with Mitch McConnell. Um, the press continues to portray him as if they're friends, which is not true. Not but true. He's done a lot of business with Mitch McConnell in the mm-hmm. past. It'll all be fine. Joe Biden was going to reach out. He can get work done. He knows Washington. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Talk about that. What's the right way to think about the prospects of Biden being able to get shit done? Yeah. In the Senate that we're going to face and the House that we know we're going to face. Yeah. Well, I'm not I, I'm not Pollyannish about what goes on in the Senate and the House, because I know everybody in the Senate and the House works according to what's in their best interest. And I've, I've seen it up close. Yes, they'll do what they think's in the best interest of the country, but it also usually neatly aligns what's in their best political interest at home. Something's happened in the Senate over the past two to four years. Uh, at the beginning of this century, you had the Republican caucus in the Senate become far more conservative. 
especially after 2010 Tea Party years. You had the Democratic caucus, which the media doesn't talk about as much, and the Senate becoming far more liberal because there were a lot of, you know, Ben Nelson and a lot of other uh, red state Democrats lost their seats or retired. And, and so the Senate was more polarized. But I just look at the makeup of the Senate right now. Yeah. You've got Joe Manchin. You've got Kristen Sinema, who votes with Joe Manchin 90% of the time. Uh, Mark Kelly, also from the Republican state of Arizona. It's still the Republican state of Arizona for the most part. He's going to be voting along with Joe Manchin. Uh, you have Governor Hickenlooper, who a uh, businessman, also uh, I think will prove to be a centrist. You start right there with four moderate slash conservative Democrats. I can't think of the last time there have been four moderate slash Democrats. And that was made possible by four years of Donald Trump. And then on the Republican side, you have Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. You've got, yes, Susan Collins in Maine, who's really now empowered to do whatever the hell she wants to do. And I think she wants to get things done because she's a Mainer. You have Pat Toomey in uh, Pennsylvania, who showed independence on the gun issue after Newtown, and he's not running again. I expect Pat Toomey to be parts of these these groups. Oh, and I, I forgot Mitt Romney. So there are eight centrists right there. And, and you're going to be surprised when I say this, but throwing a wild card like Lindsey Graham, who always has to be in the center of things. Yes. And I saw it when I served with him and, you know, in the House. If there was a coup against Newt Gingrich, then he had to be in the center of that coup. If McCain was running for president, he attached himself to McCain and was a close, dear friend with John McCain uh, until Donald Trump came to town. And then he attached himself to Donald Trump. You know, Lindsey's a guy who we've seen tearing up uh, talking about what Joe a wonderful yeah. human human being Joe Biden is. So I actually think if you're talking about COVID relief, if you're talking about immigration reform, if you're talking about transportation bills, if you're talking about moving U.S. foreign policy away from a Trump view of the world and more towards a Biden slash George W. Bush view of the world, then you're going to have Lindsey Graham in the middle of that too. So Will Mitch McConnell, out of the goodness of his heart, say, I'm going to work with Joe Biden? No. But Mitch is smart. He can count votes. Yeah. And he knows that the Senate that he's working with in 2021 is far different uh, than the Senate he was working with in 2011 when he had a lot of Tea Party senators there. So I do think things are going to get done just based on the numbers. I also know, though, Nancy Pelosi in the House is going to have a hell of a hard time because when Newt Gingrich, uh, when his majority got down to four, we ran, we ran him out of town. Yeah. Now, now, Nancy, I think, is the most capable person in Washington, D.C. I've never seen a speaker with as much discipline and control over over her caucus as, as Nancy has. So I think she'll do well. But she's going to have to deal with the moderate Democrats in the House, I think they're going to be a lot of, I think things are going to get done, but I think they're going to be a lot of really, really frustrated progressives <laughs> because, you know, elections yeah. do have consequences. Uh, Democrats didn't win uh, the way they were supposed to win. If they had, I, th I think progressives would have got a lot more done. But we got a split decision. We got Joe Biden and 
a lot of Republicans winning in legislative races. Already, the left is, and I, I, I pass no judgment, but yeah. I, you can already see Joe Biden's going to have as much problem from, from progressives as he's going to have from conservatives. Maybe, maybe not quite as much, but anybody right. who doesn't see what's coming here, uh, you're starting to see you know, the outcroppings of a lot of a very difficult coalition to manage for Joe Biden. Because I agree with you. Obviously, there's a yeah. the center of gra- the, all of that moderate action you're talking about is obviously going to happen. But man, it is not that pro- progressives have not walked away from this election saying, hey, the lesson here is that um, that uh, that we got out of our skis on stuff. Progressives still seem to be uh, no, seem, I, are right it, now it, making a lot of noise yeah. that suggests that they uh that Democrats expanded their majorities and that progressivism's on the march. It does not seem like uh, like no. Joe Biden has a quiescent left right now. It seems like it's, yeah, he's got a... Yeah, yeah. Let's face it, conservatives did extremely well. And, and I'm not here celebrating the fact that Republicans who embraced Donald Trump won. I'm shocked. I am shocked. I'm, I'm saddened that Donald Trump got over 70 million votes and and, and some of Donald Trump's enablers won the election. But as I said, elections have consequences. It is what it is. And Joe Biden is going to govern as a moderate. And it's not like he ever ran despite all the bullshit and all the <laughs> lies that Republicans spread about Joe Biden. It's not like this guy ever ran as a progressive. They go, oh, he signed the Bernie whatever. I do three-hour news show every day. I don't even know that bullshit that they're talking about. He signed the Bernie memorandum. What the fuck? I don't know what you're talking about. I just know this is a guy that ran as a moderate. He got blown out in Iowa. He got blown out in New Hampshire. And after all the white progressives had their say, the black women of South Carolina said, hold my beer. And then they voted for Joe Biden. And then black voters on Super Tuesday voted for Joe Biden. And then the rest of the Democratic Party followed. I think the person that's going to have the hardest job in Washington, D.C., maybe it's Nancy Pelosi. uh, But I wouldn't want to be sitting in Chuck Schumer's seat right now because you're right. He's going to have to figure out how to pull the progressive wing a little more towards the center and they're going to hate it. And I understand why, because I was a conservative who hated it when, you know, moderate Republicans always seem to get their way on a lot of issues. But that's the makeup of Washington after this really bizarre election. It is true. And it is the two things are both simultaneously true. The progressives back Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren were helpful. Progressive votes helped him to win uh, this election. And at the same time, he managed to get the Democratic nomination, making very few actual policy concessions to the left, whether it was on Medicare for all or a lot of other things. He owes everybody in his coalition, but he's not constitutionally progressive. And you know what happens when presidents get in office once they've won, which is that they go back to ground. They go back to who they are. And so anybody who expects him to suddenly govern in some bold, ambitious, progressive way, you're just like, you're not really understanding the way this works, guys. So can I ask you, because I, I, I know you, you've been out on the campaign trail a lot more than me, yeah. and I know you've talked to a lot of voters. I know you've been thinking about this a lot. What do you think happened in 2020? Because what I heard, you know, where I live, from my friends, from everybody else, is there seemed to be a greater fear of the Democratic Party in 2020 
than I heard in 2018 or 16 or 14. It just it even from people that I expected to vote for Joe Biden, they would tell me, you know what? I just can't. I, 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 I'm just afraid of the Democrats. They're socialists. I've got an operating theory, but I'm really curious what yours is. What I kept hearing at the end was there was an incredible amount of COVID fatigue mm -hmm. and his kind of like just that denialism that somehow, you know, we were turning the corner. And again, this goes to all these larger questions about the information bubbles that we all live in. But you, you started to run into, I remember I'm sitting there in Iowa on the weekend before the election when Ann Seltzer's poll came out that had Trump up by eight in Iowa and sitting there in a room with a Democratic strategist and Republican strategist and being like shocked by that because it had been even in Iowa in her yeah. previous poll. And we looked at this poll and thought, man, this is like nuts. What is going on here? And the only explanation you could really get from people was that Republicans in the end, you know, just were desperate to believe the Trump lies about the fact that we've come around the corner, we just need to reopen, we need to focus on the economy, ended up having a lot of traction in the Republican Party. And I just think a lot of that goes to some very, very deep information bubbles that we live in, where it's almost impossible to get your head around the notion that there were, you know, 74 million Republicans mm -hmm. for whom the notion that COVID was kind of in the rearview mirror in yeah. late October, early November. But that seems to have been kind of what happened out there. I, I, it, I, I agree with you. I, I, I actually, it's interesting that you've come to that conclusion because the last three or four days, again, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how did this happen? How did Donald Trump get over 70 million votes? How did people who just denied reality uh, do as well as they did? And I just came to the same conclusion that you did. Uh, and based on everything that I've seen, and also talking to a lot of Republican operatives who I've known for years, knew back when I was in the party, uh, it's COVID fatigue. They wanted to believe what the president was saying was true. When they saw him going out campaigning, when they saw the crowds, they wanted to believe that we were turning the corner and there was just an exhaustion. They wanted to get back to work. They wanted to get their life back. So I think that explains most of it. Now, I do believe that defund the police and I do believe that the socialism stuff did matter in some areas of the country. And we all convinced ourselves that Trump's demagoguery on law and order and the yeah. defunding of the police didn't make a difference. People would go, oh, well, look at the polls. Look at the polls in Wisconsin. I said it myself. Look at the polls. Obviously, uh, the demagoguery didn't work. Guess what? It did. It worked in the suburbs. There are a lot of people who claimed that they were going for Biden, going for Democratic candidates. At the end of the day, they couldn't do it. And for a lot of suburban voters, I think for a lot of women that we thought by looking at polls were going to break Biden's way, I think they went home. They went home to the Republican Party because they believe they're going to be more responsible on on crime issues. They thought they, they were going to be more responsible on economic issues. Uh, they were already hurting because of COVID. Small business owners were already hurting because of COVID. And they were ready for this country to get moving forward again. Pandemics and 250,000 dead be damned. And I, I think that's why we were all shocked. One other thing, too. I'm a huge believer in, in the blocking yeah. and tackling of politics. And I'm a big believer in that because I only got elected to Congress because I knocked on 10,000 doors. I planted yard signs in 10,000 yards. I ran grassroots campaigns. And I saw what a huge difference it made. Nobody knew who I was, 
But after knocking on 10,000 doors and after running that grassroots campaign and after hardly, I don't, I didn't, I don't think I ran a single poll. It made a huge difference. Republicans knocked on doors. That's one of the things in that Dave Weigel interview with the, the new Iowa totally. congresswoman. She talked about how yeah. they campaigned hard. She said, we campaigned carefully, but we got out and we held events all over the district. Uh, the Democrat didn't. We knocked on doors. The Democrat didn't. And yes. you can't <laughs> overestimate the impact that has an election. This, this is for people that haven't been involved in politics before. This would be as if an NFL team, and I'm dead serious here, did not lift weights for nine months. And they played against <laughs> another NFL yeah. team that continued their weightlifting regimen and continued uh, their their training regimen. And you can be pissed off at me if you want to. It, it does you no good because I don't care. And it yeah. doesn't change the realities. Well, look, but Republicans, I'll tell you, there, there's a guy that you and I both know. I won't, I won't say his name here because I don't know if he'd, he'd want me to. He was involved in a grassroots campaign to get black voters registered and voting for the Democratic Party. And he was making extraordinary progress. Yeah. I said, what happened? He goes, well, COVID came and we stopped. Republicans didn't stop. Yeah. The thing we're talking about here is two things trying to explain is how could Trump have gone from 63 million to 74 million votes in 2016 and 2020? And how could Democrats do so poorly at the Senate and House levels in the face of these economic and pandemic conditions? I will yeah. say this to your last point. The most striking example of uh, it was Florida, where, you know, yeah. I went down and talked to, you know, the woman who won Florida twice for Donald Trump, Susie Wiles. One yeah. of the most accomplished Florida strategists in the Republican Party. She won it for him in 2016 when people said she couldn't. She won it for him in 2020 when people said she couldn't. She also won it for the governor. She said to me when I went down and visited her in, I think, September, maybe October, she's like, I'm not even connected to the Trump national effort. I'm just running Florida. I yeah. know how to win in Florida. And the reason we're going to win is because we are... On the, we have a ground game, and people say you don't need a ground game in Florida. It's all media markets, blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. Unbelievable. We are going to win here because we have an army. We're on the ground. We're knocking doors, and we don't see. Biden people aren't here. They're on TV, but they're not doing anything on the ground level. And in the end, it's going to be a close election, but we're going to win by two or three points. Yeah. She ended up winning by more than that. And she pointed to me in that interview to Miami-Dade. She's like, we're going to do better yeah. with Hispanics than people think. We're, gonna, we're focused on Miami-Dade. And we are on the ground like you. There's a lot of Florida. You yeah. can't have a ground game. But in some of these key counties in the I-4 corridor and Miami-Dade, you could have a ground game. And that's where we're focused. And I, I mean, I remember I take Susie Wiles yeah. seriously because of her track record. But on election night, I was down there in Pinellas County and watched it happen. You know, Biden wins Pinellas, but gets yeah. crushed in Miami-Dade. And in the end, the only explanation for what happened in Florida at the presidential level was the difference between ground game there, right? The, where the polls were off because people misunder, mis, misapprehended and underestimated the effect of Trump's ground game and the difference that they were willing to go out and do that shit in the face of the pandemic and the, and the Biden people were not. And again, let's remember, yeah. right? I mean, Joe Biden won. So it's not, this is, it was a Pyrrhic victory for them to win Florida. But I do think that that mattered a lot Huge at the congressional difference. level, the willingness of Republicans to take risks with public health. I, I mean, we're not vindicating the strategy by saying that it worked. In the world as it should be, everyone would have said, you know no. what, we're not going to go knock on doors because we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. Stay the fuck home. But the reality is that in some cases, at least, behavior that should not have been encouraged 
that was not helpful to the country in terms of public health, and that that was inadvisable, yep. that was reckless. That in some cases, that some of that behavior may yeah, have and, actually and again, also if people worked are, if people, on behalf of some of the, the candidates that it was on behalf of. We all shouldn't overread what happened in this election only because, as you said, in the state of Florida, for instance, Florida Republicans, you know, the Portlands of Donald Trump are killers. They're killers. They do whatever it takes to win. <laughs> they do whatever it takes to win every two years. And whether it was in Florida or whether it was in Michigan or whether it was in Iowa, whether it was in Georgia, wherever it was, you know, Republicans were lifting weights. Republicans were doing their sprints. Republicans yeah. were doing the things they needed to do to win. And Democrats weren't because, yes, they were being responsible. But Republicans should not expect the same thing to happen in 2022. Let's just wrap with, with this one last question. What's your sense at this moment, Joe, because you're yep. not only a Southerner, a panhandle guy and a Mississippi guy, you're right. also a Georgia guy. Like, you know, you know, a longtime yep. Atlanta Braves fan, someone who spent a lot of time. Just you don't have to spend a lot of time on this. But what's your gut right now? You know, conventional political wisdom says in a runoff situation like this, turnout goes down. There's no president driving turnout. Irregular voters don't show up. So I wonder what you think is going to what, what you see unfolding in Georgia in those runoffs. I thought because of the suburbs, I thought Biden was the type of guy that could actually play well in the Atlanta suburbs. Thought it was going to be close. At the end of the day, I thought in the end it would probably tilt to Trump. But I thought Biden could win. I still don't think the Democrats can win either one of those seats. But as the Wall Street Journal editorial page said this morning, if they do, both of those Democratic senators should have a picture of Donald Trump up in their office because Trump will have elected them. Yes, correct. Totally right. Like I said, it, in normal circumstances, yeah. Democrats should lose both, yeah. those, both those races. These are not normal circumstances. And to the extent that they're not normal circumstances, they are entirely abnormal because of the most abnormal president we've ever had, Donald J. Trump. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm surprised that my gut still believes as strongly as I do that the Republicans are going to win both of those after Biden won it. But I kind of felt the same about South Carolina with Jamie Harrison. Everybody was talking about Harrison was going to win. I don't think Jamie Harrison lost in South Carolina because he was black. I think Jamie Harrison lost in South Carolina because he was a Democrat. So I think enough Republicans are going to come out to make sure that Chuck Schumer is not the majority leader of the United States Senate to put the Republicans over the top. But my God, my God, Donald Trump and Lynn Wood and the cast of clowns down there, the Confederacy of Dunces, are doing their damnedest to make these both close races. <laughs> Confederacy of Dunces, that uh, basically sums up Donald Trump's Republican Party, except Confederacy of Dunces times like a million. Joe, thank you so much for doing the podcast today. It was great to have you here, my friend. Uh, and that wraps it up for us. Come back next week, Hell and High Water. It's a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you like this episode, and how couldn't you like this episode? Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us on the Apple Podcast app. It helps people figure out what we are doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Leah Jackson engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer.